Songezo Mapete on the viewpoint. Songezo Mapete with Tessa Dooms. Our systems are a little behind just for today. Of course, things will be normal tomorrow and not to say today is abnormal. And to the extent that it is abnormal, it's good abnormal because Ms. Tessa Dooms, Youth Commissioner, National Planning Commission, as well as Director at Jasoro Consulting, newly established development consultancy that provides organizations with services on policy programming and organizational strategies towards the development broadly of Africa. Now, Tessa, just a recap. What do you think of what Siabule Lamachaya in Zweda, Port Elizabeth, said? He says, open quote, the youth of 76 played their role, FISMA's four leaders did, and are still doing theirs also. I wish the youth can also focus more on gender violence and ways to fight the spread of COVID-19 in all social media platforms. Thanks, Yablila. Much appreciated. Tessa, your response to that? Yeah, um, I actually think young people, in terms of gender-based violence, have really been at the forefront um, of raising the issues and um, bringing awareness. I think we've been having more conversations about gender-based violence in the last four to five years as a society as a whole than we've ever had. And I think we can credit um, young activists, young women who took to the streets um, not um, even 12 months ago to to make sure that those issues are on the table. And um, I think the president made an interesting call um, in his June 16 address that young people are going to need to be at the forefront um, of reviving our country and our economy post-COVID-19. And it is not beyond um, the scope of SA Young People to be able to do that. SA Young People um, have both the capacity, the interest, the eagerness to do those kinds of things. We just need to make them a necessary space and, um, and not, not push them back or not um, be impatient about the, the things they bring to the table. But I'm not so sure I really want to listen to the president speaking on young people's issues, to be honest. (laughs) Look at his cabinet. Um, Look at the people he leans on. Very few young people are there. He's contesting for the presidency as a 67-year-old. Chances are he's going to contest for the presidency again. He'll be in his 70s. The last time he was competing, he was competing with somebody in her 70s. Mama Gosazanadlamini Zuma. Does that message just simply not get lost in do as I say as opposed to do as I do? Are we in a position where we are led by people who genuinely believe in the programs and the agenda for young people? What are your thoughts as a youth commissioner? You know, we're not. And um, I don't think political parties in our country generally, and I even here include some of them that have quite youthful faces in them, um, really are are ready for young people to take up space and um, to use um, Zorzi's phrase. Mm. And the ANC particularly has this culture that says, um, for instance, you must be 10 years in the ANC before you can be in the NEC. For what? What are you, you know, what is the basis of that? What Mm. does age give you? And the ANC is, um, is not cognizant of its own history. The same leaders who are sitting in Parliament and sitting in that cabinet right now, when they were 30, they were made ministers not so long ago. When they were in their, in their youth, they were leading that ANC, leading structures in society. And so there is a, a trust deficit that we have when it comes to young people. Um, and even young people are starting to doubt whether they should vote for a young person because they just haven't seen enough of it. Sure. And um, we, we do need to create those spaces. And I know people are saying, yeah, no, the youth must fight for it and they must take that space and they must grab that space. When they try to do it, they get shot. <laughs> so, 
you know, we mustn't be in this society where the only way somebody is going to get power is if they wrestle it away from me. We must be wanting to create space and wanting to make those spaces because we see the value of young people in a predominantly useful society leading us. Fantastic. Well, as somebody who's involved in policy development and related programs, here are some questions that I'm going to put now to Miss Mandy Wiener, who is an author of Ministry of Crime, Killing Kebble. That's, of course, the brother of former Springbok rugby player Guy Kebble. We're talking about Brett Kebble. Yes, somebody who's very much linked to the African National Congress. My Second Initiation, that's a book on and about of Vusipigoli and Behind the Door. She's a journalist, tweeter, speaker, storyteller, investigator, and Mother Mandy Wynne talking to us about some of the things that are the scourge of a society. The question is, Tessa, think about this whilst we engage Mandy just very briefly. How do we ensure the safety of whistleblowers? Where do we begin to change institutional culture in a time of flagrant corruption in both private and public sector? What kind of inheritance is being left for the next generation? Next generation, of course, that can only and must mean young people who are watching this, who are observing the patterns of accountability or lack of accountability, and soon, if not already, will be presiding over precious little state resources, and what template then will they be working off? That's a conversation now, the African narrative with Miss Mandy Wiener. She'll be with us for about 10 minutes, after which we will be joined by Open Secrets' Mr. Henny van Yerden. After the break, it's Mandy. Good evening, everybody. Tessa, it's all yours after this. on SAFM. Tessa, Miss Mandy Wiener is on the line. She's here to answer some questions about the troubles and perils of being a whistleblower in South Africa, reporting corruption in the private and public sector. Take it over, Tessa. Good evening, Mandy. Thanks for joining us. My name is Songezo, but the conversation really is between yourself and Tessa. Good evening, Mandy. Thanks thanks for joining us. And I mean, you've, you've been looking at the world of South African politics and also the kind of underbelly of um, the South African um, world for a long, long time. And I think um, what's an important question for us to, to ask is, when we look at um, the South African landscape, you know, what do we make of organized crime and what do we make of political crimes and um, the way in which our society responds to them? Have we just become so used to it or do we feel like we just can't do anything about um, this kind of world of crime that um, we see but we don't necessarily know how to engage with? Well, I think the two are inextricably linked, and I think we've seen that in South Africa. It's not necessarily unique to South Africa, but it's definitely amplified here, where we see that relationship between politics and, and organized crime. Um, there's always been that, that overlap from, um, you know, the, the days of, of uh, as you mentioned, Brett Kebble, where there was that link between the underworld. Um, but we've also seen it in, in various different other, other layers as well. Um, so that's something that, you know, that we just can't escape in this country, is that there's always going to be that link. You know, we see um, allegations more recently um, between uh, legal, illegal tobacco barons and politicians uh, popping up time and time again. And that's something that is just, um, you know, is part of the norm in South Africa now. Yeah, and how does this link to the question of um, politics, politics and who we vote for and uh, maybe issues around... Um, who funds political parties, how do these relationships start? And as the voter, as the citizen, how are we part of the story? So I think a lot of it comes down to funding of political parties and uh, a lack of transparency around that. 
Um, so obviously, you know, that's where we've seen time and time again um, in the past where, where questions arise um, around who's funding political parties, the fact that often they will turn to organized crime for for money, um, you know, so that's that does come up uh, often. And, and then when you speak about personal responsibility, it's about holding um, our politicians to account to make sure that they are transparent, that they disclose where the money comes from. Um, but also it's about having an active civil society. And that's really where, where whistleblowers come in. You know, it's making sure that people are active, that they're vigilant and that we are watching the watchmen. I mean, you know, we talk about whistleblowers, but we also know that, um, you know, we, we, we think of um, politics as a bit of a dirty game and a dangerous game. And so um, whistleblowers often feel like they're going to be targeted and not just, you know, they'll, they'll lose their job, but they could lose their life. So what are some of the, um, the things that serve as protections and should serve as protection mechanisms for whistleblowers in South Africa, but also in other parts of the continent? I mean, um, I was speaking to um, a young man who started a forum called Jammy Forums in um, Tanzania. And, and this is an online platform where people can go and anonymously post when they know about corruption in the system or they know about political corruption or even private sector corruption. And, I mean, he was tracked down. He was jailed. He, he pleads for his life even today. And so what are some of the checks and balances that need to be in place um, in order to protect people who speak up against corruption in our societies? So you, you don't have to look that far um, outside of South Africa. To, to look for examples of, of this. So most recently, if you look at um, KwaZulu-Natal and the political violence there, where there has been a spate of, of, of killings. Um, and one of the whistleblowers that I've been speaking to is uh, Tabisa Zulu, who has been very outspoken about um, uh, corruption there, um, who has been shot himself. You know, you look at the, the shootings at Glidlands, um, you look at the Morani Commission, and that's the perfect example of how whistleblowers are targeted um, when it's linked to politics. Uh, look at Mpumalanga and the um, shootings that happened there um, over the 2010 uh, stadium corruption. Look at Rustenburg um, and the fact that we had a councillor um, who was uh, shot there as well, linked to, to politics. In all of these incidents, there, there's not been justice. And it's the failure of the criminal justice system that doesn't hold people to account. And, and that's really the primary concern here, is that mm. whistleblowers feel that justice doesn't, the, the criminal justice system does not protect them because it doesn't hold murderers to account. Let me just um, interject there, please. Yeah. Sorry, Mandy, um, and sorry to you, Tessa, as well. You mentioned corruption in relation to 2010. I suppose it's a good time to talk about it because we're being very nostalgic now in relation to this time 10 years ago. There have been some very prominent names, certainly through the great Fine. Some of them find themselves in just about the very highest office in this country mm-hmm. politically. Some are attached to serious soccer clubs in Soweto. Those names, to the extent that they are part of Bry conversation, surely there must be where there is smoke, fire somewhere. Or is this just one very good rumor that has just for whatever reason been left unattended? Mandy? So this this particular case that you're referring to, and the the, the murder of, of Jimmy Mokala in in Pumalanga, we know that there have been allegations against senior politicians and, and powerful people. Um, the matter um, has never essentially been resolved. You know, it did go to court, charges were dropped. Um, you know, there's always been suspicion around whether the NPA was captured or not. And this is the problem that we've got in this country: is that for the past decade, we've seen this very very evasive um, justice 
because of the criminal justice system being essentially captured um, and corruption being at play. And for that reason, there's never been a resolution to any of these issues. So we've seen whistleblowers being taken out, effectively, and nobody being held accountable because the justice system is so broken. Um, And that's because if you have power and if you have influence and if you have money, um, for a long time you were able to capture the system. And it's really hoped that since Shamila Batoy came in as NDPP that there will be a turnaround. And that's why we're all watching so, so closely to see what happens there because... So many people want justice for these people who've lost their lives. Tessa, it's all yours. Yeah, I mean, Maggie, the the secrecy bill um, has just been sent back to Parliament. And um, a part of that is also about whistleblowers and the protection of whistleblowers. Um, again, what, what do we have at our disposal to try and protect whistleblowers, to try and encourage the culture of people stepping forward? I mean, when we look at the Zondo Commission, it just seems incredible that so many people knew so many things and are only speaking out now. How do we encourage that culture and how do we ensure that people are going to feel like both in terms of legislation and in terms of culture and in terms of prosecution? that they'll actually Mm. see justice and feel protected if they speak up. So in South Africa, the the main whistleblowing law is called the Protected Disclosures Act. Um, And every single whistleblower that I've spoken to over the past year that I've interviewed for for this book that I'm I'm writing on whistleblowers uh, has said to me that that they felt that the PDA has completely failed them, that they feel that it hasn't protected them. It's it's based in labor law more than anything else. It's not practical. Mm. Um, So that's been the concern for people. They feel like the legislation just doesn't protect them. But then on a more fundamental level, they feel that they're not supported by any kind of organization. So there are um, NGOs and civil society organizations like PLUS, like ALTA, like Corruption Watch, but we don't have an independent Chapter 9 organization um, that whistleblowers can go to. Uh, the problem often is that they don't have the money to fight big corporates or government in the courts when they bring out these protracted legal battles. They haven't got money for um, for physical protection if they feel like they might be taken out. And then a lot of people struggle to find employment after this. They, they always have the scarlet letter. Uh, nobody will touch them. No one will come near them. So a lot <laughs> yeah. of these whistleblowers are left unemployed. Their finances drained. A lot of them struggle with, with mental health issues because they feel right. like pariahs. They push to the fringes of society. And that's really concerning, the culture and the way that we treat whistleblowers in this country. Fantastic. Mandy, yeah, I'm sorry, 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 yeah. Tessa. I, I, I should hasten to say that Mandy is probably already in overtime, so we're going to let her go. The conversation, yeah. of course, continues with Mr. Henny van Heerden, who can continue the conversation. Of course, he represents the organization <laughs> Open Secrets. Good evening. Uh, thanks for your time, Henny. Perhaps it's a good time for us just to take a call, and Tessa will continue from there. Let's take a call from Anonymous, which is in line with this conversation. You've obviously been listening, Henny, so you shouldn't be out of sorts in possibly responding to what the caller has to say. Good evening, Anonymous in Durban. Well, good evening to you, Sam. And good evening to your guests. Eh? A marvelous conversation. Congratulations on the con- uh, on the conversation between you. yourself and your guest. You, I just want to state that you know what? It's just uh, what about people that are totally victimized in so many different ways? Like I've been victimized in so many different ways for talking out. Yet I campaigned for Mr. Mandela. Yet I campaigned for the ANC. 
but I was victimized in so many different ways where my lights were cut off, where my water was disconnected. I was uh, told that I, I steal because I was complaining that they were filling in job cards without the job being done and complaining about municipal officials. And I've been so badly victimized by the very same officials, even though I was uh, the person who wanted democracy in this country. I took to the streets. I went to the farm areas, you know, and risked my life. But in the end results, this is what I've got for complaining about poor service delivery and for complaining. These, these are the councillors that are not literate, you know, um, uh, properly literate. Um, uh, to counsel, um, uh, 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 probably, uh, uh, mm. to, I say, to, uh, to, to, uh, to counsel or, or political, uh, not affiliated to, uh, to being a politician, because yes. some of them are just sitting with a crown on their head and call themselves king. Excellent. You know, when a party yeah. wins. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, thanks so much, Alimish. Tessa, it's all yours. Uh, can you join the conversation, if you have a response to that? How, how do people, um, you know, feel like they can step forward? Hi. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that the, the concern that the anonymous has raised is probably a concern that, that you know, many people do feel. And Nandi was pointing towards that. And um, I think the sharp end of it is places like KZN, where it's particularly politicians, uh, often within the you know, governing ANC, um, who've spoken out about corruption, have been murdered. And the ANC itself is seen as a problem. So when that starts to happen within the governing party, with all its power within the state um, and access to resources, and the party itself cannot seem to deal with the situation, I think it leaves many ordinary folk with a sense of, you know, of helplessness. Um, it, it, I think the, you know, the, the crucial point is that what we are then left with is uh, civil society to rally around whistleblowers when politicians do fail them. There isn't an easy answer. I think that whistleblowing is an incredibly risky business in South Africa and frankly around mm-hmm. the globe. There are many investigative journalists, whistleblowers and others who face all kinds of public you know, pressure of one sort or the other um, and have had their, you know, put their lives on the line effectively. Um, but ultimately, this is part of the daily work of democracy in a way. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a crucial part of making our democratic institutions sustainable and, and you know, I, I, you know we, we can't only provide solidarity like much else which we have to do in society is support those people and find ways to do so. Absolutely and I mean we, we're in the Africa slot in this um, section and I, I mean we know that these kinds of things happen all over the globe as you said but is there anything that's particular about our history and our politics and our forms of democracy in Africa that makes it um, rife amongst um, our our countries and our communities. I mean, you know, we have a strong man culture. We do have, you know, leaders for life and people who um, we have so many instances where we say, you know, elections have been stolen. Is there something particular about the way we're doing our politics on the continent that is making this more pervasive and more dangerous for us as Africans in in, these, in our countries? Yeah, I, you know, to be honest, I think that that's the, the risk of generalization is it doesn't get us very far. We tend to see this entire continent of over a billion people and very complex systems of government, governance in various countries. Um, and, you know, I, I would really uh, hate to be the one to go down that road. <clears throat> I think that, you know, our mm-hmm. countries are, many of our countries are different points of uh, our own political processes. Um, you know, the, I think the, the, you know, the big challenges very clearly are in a number of countries. Um, is the is what well, you refer to the politics of the strong man, but it is the power of um, of governing parties who become ruling parties, 
and don't want to leave office. We've seen this in Zimbabwe. I think we see the continuation of that and in a range of other countries and the suppression, effectively, of opposition. We've seen uh, new administrations come in, although the same governing party in Tanzania, for example, on a very strong anti-corruption ticket. And um, yeah. the government there has, in fact, turned very often on civil society, turned on minority groups, uh, and is now practicing what seems like a denialism when it's in the midst of a public health crisis. So I think, you know, we, we the, often we have an expectation that the new has been born, and that is not the case. Um, even when in, in, in Angola we've seen a, a family, which is effectively like a royal family, who has plundered the, com- the country's resources, uh, you know, being, being moved out in the Dos Santos family and uh, Isabella Dos Santos's large imperium that she's built up across the world. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, those tentacles are deep and they, they reach deep into those societies. So, um, you know, I think on the one hand, there are those issues. We also face the, the very real problems. Um, those are not only the structural problems, but also the role, of course, of, of many big corporations, whether mm. they are from right. China, the United States, Europe, elsewhere. The enablers. Active on the continent and in, the enablers, yep. active in the extraction of resources. Um, the bankers and the lawyers, the auditors in countries like South Africa, very clearly, without whom um, state capture wouldn't have happened within the last 10 years. And so we need to see it as a system, which obviously is a system that stretches across the world. We are part of, of um, an international flow of money, and the extraction that comes from Africa ends up in the banks in, in the streets of London, where many of our leaders and leaders go for their medical treatment or on their holidays uh, and, and live off those fruits. So... Um, no, I think it's it's really crucial for us to appreciate uh, that there isn't a peculiarity in our problem. Yeah. If anything, we fit into a global machinery. Quick question. Sorry to and interrupt that, there, Tessa. Sorry, yeah, I beg sorry. your pardon. This is my final question for this evening. You'll take it. What is the value, Henny, of the hawks on television at primetime news being beamed across all news houses? SABC, ENCA, Newsroom Africa, and even an international one. The police commissioner is in handcuffs. His drug-dealing friend is in handcuffs. They are getting chucked into a hawk's vehicle to go and answer to their sins. How valuable is that in the reimagination of a society and its relationship with the rule of law? I'm talking, of course, about Glenn Agliotti and Jackie Celebi somewhat 10, 13, 15 years ago. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that those, those moments are incredibly important. They send a signal that the powerful in our society, whether it's the Agliotti-type character, who's very much a middleman, a dealmaker in, you know, in the past, and, and, and of course Jackie Celebi, that, that they are not beyond the reach of the law. In the same way, in the next couple of weeks, we will see probably the biggest, most important corruption trial that this country will have seen this year and in many years in the, the, the trial of the French arms company Talis and former President Jacob Zuma, who are deeply complicit in alleged corruption that has cost this country uh, you know, a, a vast amount of money and, and harmed our institutions to an extraordinary extent and to the profit of those French arms companies in Jacob Zuma's pocket. Those are the, you know, that case, that, that point that people such as this cannot merely you know, go straight for an amnesty, um, that, that cases may take 10 or 15 years to bring to court but ultimately there will be justice. That's how we break the cycle of impunity. And I think we need to watch those things very carefully. 
Yeah, I think that that's a really um, important thing that we need to start seeing that these kind of um, accountability measures are in place, um, especially because, as the caller said, it's about these individuals that blow the whistle and whether or not they can participate in the justice system that works. Uh, maybe just as a, as a parting shot, because we haven't really spoken a lot about the private sector and whistleblowing in that context, but um, my mind just goes to the, COVID, the current COVID-19 crisis. And there have been these incidents that have been starting to pop up where employees, for example, are saying that they need to be whistleblowing against their employers who are doing um, poor labor practices or poor practices around um, safety and all of those kinds of things. Does that also fall in the realm of the whistleblowing um, arena? And how do we start to um, empower those kind of people? Are there points of recourse and support for you in a very limited capacity where you're not talking about the state, but you're just talking about you and your employer and um, the kind of dangers around blowing the whistle in that context. Yeah, I think there's certainly, you know, there have been some changes to whistleblowing laws, our whistleblowing law over the last years, but I, I would still argue it hasn't go far enough in the protection of, of whistleblowers, particularly in the private sector. The problems are manifold and whether it's the, the conditions of service that people experience through to the important role that whistleblowers play in exposing corruption involving the private sector. We wouldn't know, for example, about the big p- private pension companies' um, practice of continuing to withhold pensions, which are, held, which are due to about uh, 5 million South Africans. We're talking about amounts of many billions of rands, up to 50 billion rands now. If it wasn't for whistleblowers in our regulators and in those private sector companies who've mm-hmm. paid with their jobs, so um, those people continue to face an enormous amount of pressure. Um, so I think that, you know, we, we, you know given the, the short time we have, I think it's just to appreciate the fact that this is not an issue of protecting the whistleblowers only within the public sector. They are crucial. Yeah. But it is our understanding as well of, uh, that we need people in those big uh, glass high-rises to realize that they can't just look out of the world. You know, they can't just look out of the world. They have to be part of the world. Absolutely. And that means speaking out about this kind of practice. I have to interrupt because we are yeah. woefully out of time. Thank you very much then, Mr. Henny van Heerden, who is... Van Fieren. Van I beg your <laughs> pardon. I kept saying van Heerden all this time. Mm. Open secrets, all power and profit, or truth and justice. It's your call, South Africans. Tessa Dooms, thank you so much for your time. If ever you think of having a career change, be very sure there's a seat open right next to me here. Ms. Tessa Dooms, Director of Jasoro Consulting thank Youth Commission. Thank you. It's been a really great um, time to spend with you and the SFM listeners. Excellent. 2132, let's go to the book reading.